The last few weeks, we have been taking a look at a really old book of stories called Your Aladdin's Lamp by Harlan Ware and William H.D., better known as Bill Hornaday. Bill Hornaday is a name synonymous with religious science and new thought. He was one of Ernest Holmes' most trusted friends and colleagues, so it's no surprise that this book is really quite something to read. Although the stories were written in the style of a parable, a parable is a story with a moral or lesson to impart, the material is taken from the files of actual cases from the early days of the Institute of Religious Science. Every bit of these is true. They come not only from in-office accounts from each case, but also from taped recordings of public lectures, verbatim reports from seminars, and from the memory of the two authors present during the early days of religious science. And it is done this way because, in their words, they intended to capture the attitude and speech of a remarkable man who sought in all religions an expression of the central integrity in the universe. Last week, we looked at an experience of Bill Hornaday's in a talk I called Lessons from a Buddhist. This week, we are looking at the second of only three stories from the entire book where the subject's actual name was used. Now, I wrestled with a certain aspect of this story. I, I wrestled with how much focus I wanted to place on the racial division which was brought into the telling of the tale. Because when I looked at the whole point of the story, race or any other kind of societal division had nothing to do with it. I did, however, want to share with you the kind of person Ernest Holmes was. And I'll do that through the eyes of a woman named Sally Steen Kinsey. Sally's uncle was Reverend J. Arthur Twine, and he was the first African-American to be given a charter for a church of religious science. And this was in 1935, when fears ran deep and wide over something as meaningless as the level of melanin in people's skin. So when I tell you that not only was he the first African-American to be given a charter, but he was given the charter for the third church of religious science ever. You have to know that this was a man whom Ernest Holmes held dear. And so Sally and her cousin, Arthur Jr., knew Ernest as a central figure in their life from birth. On pages 219 and 220, Sally says, there were family legends about Dr. Holmes. Once at a convention, he took the baby away from my aunt and wouldn't give him up. He carried young Arthur Jr. all around the hotel, inside and out, showing him to everybody, including total strangers. Arthur was about a year old then, starchy and bright-eyed under his white bonnet. Have you ever seen a more beautiful baby in your life? He'd ask with misty eyes. A very sentimental man, Dr. Holmes. 
but not always. Sally never forgot how he had impressed a Sunday audience. Somebody had complained that too many non-Caucasians were attending the services. The people who were in the theater that day still remember his remarks. Dr. Holmes took his place at the rostrum and waited. Soon, you could hear a pin drop. Still, he waited. It was a standing room only crowd. Not even the standees whispered or moved. At long last, he spoke. I have been told that too many non-Caucasians attend these lectures. True, there are Caucasians and non-Caucasians in this congregation, but this we must affirm. We are all children of one living God, one life that permeates all without exception, one intelligence that governs all, and most important, every man and woman who abides in the universe is a significant identity in the one universal consciousness. Our doors will forever be open to all. Whoever you are, be proud. You are a divine idea in the mind of God. She says, and everybody applauded. That took care of that. That was Ernest Holmes. And it's us right here today. Society has shifted and changed. And although that melanin quandary still exists in the minds of some people, many of this country's collective fears have morphed into new ones. Targeted at different demographics and meaningless divisions mind-bogglingly still seem to exist. But we here at the Santa Anita Church, we know the same truth that Ernest Holmes did. Everyone, even those we disagree with or we're afraid of, is the stuff of divinity. And everyone, even those we disagree with or are afraid of, is a part of us. So this place, when we are gathered, is safe for everyone, just as was any place Ernest Holmes was. Now back to Sally. Uncle Arthur told her to go to his lectures whenever she could because Dr. Holmes was a great man and she wouldn't see his like again. After she outgrew Sunday school, she regularly made the long bus trip to the theater where he spoke on Sunday morning. She says, often the lecture was over her head. And as we heard in the story last week, sometimes Dr. Holmes himself seemed to be baffled about what he was saying. What an amazing statement, he remarked one time, putting down his chalk as if just hearing what he himself said. I wonder what I meant. Does anybody know? Nobody did. Well, let's remember it he suggested gravely. If one of us should figure it out, we'll all take a step ahead. 
At such times, Sally didn't know whether he was joking or if perhaps a tremendous idea had come from inner space because he'd got himself out of the way. One of my favorite quotes from Ralph Waldo Emerson is, let us take our bloated nothingness out of the path of divine circuits. That sounds pretty much on the spot for Ernest's process in those moments, doesn't it? In those days, Sally had a pretty clear idea of the meaning of consciousness. Some of it she had heard and some she'd worked out for herself. She realized on this planet, there seems to be quantity and quality of consciousness and varying degrees of sensitivity in individuals. But there's little question at this point that whoever we are, we have within us the potential for more awareness than we're likely to experience. Think about that. We have the potential for more awareness than we are likely to experience. We aren't half trying. And so it was that Sally began trying and trying hard. She knew her access to divine consciousness was unlimited and she knew that if she really focused, she could create in her life anything she dreamed of. And she dreamed of dancing. Sally realized that dream as a young girl, very young. She was a junior at John Muir High School here in Pasadena when she heard about an opening at the White House, White Horse Tavern, a nightclub. Her mother wouldn't approve, she knew, but then her mother worked nights as a chef and didn't get home until 3 a.m. Early that evening, Sally left an armload of books with a startled doorman and called on the manager of the White Horse Tavern, offering to show him a few routines. They went out to the dance floor, and he watched with cold eyes. She hadn't quite finished the first number when he said, You're hired, kid. So she went to work for $45 a week. Her career was launched. Mom didn't suspect, and all was well. They were ships passing in the night. When Sally bolted away for Muir Tech in the morning, toast in hand, her mother was still sleeping. They got together on Sundays, but it was the hotel's busy season, and often, Mom filled in weekends or put in overtime. It was a glorious period for Sally. She'd been a success from opening night, she knew how to handle all the problems on stage and off. It was as if she had been a professional dancer in another life. Her first paycheck seemed enormous, and she saved every cent of that $45. Does that tell you how long ago this really was? She saved every cent of that, and the next check plus the first added up to more cash than she had ever seen before. Then the manager gave her a brief solo on the second Saturday night. It was a hit. She could hear the sweet sound of swelling applause and felt such an upwelling of gratitude that she took a second bow and finally blew them kisses with both hands. She was on her way. 
A young musician in the band dropped her off at the front gate at 2 a.m. as usual. Sally ran in and was fumbling for the light switch when she heard someone breathing. And the lights blazed on. It was Mom. Here stood the high school junior in golden tights with a golden tiara on her head, a golden cape tossed over her slim shoulders and inch-long eyelashes. She had her school books with her, but under the circumstances, they didn't quite look right. So she hastily put them down, explained everything, and piled money on the living room table. Sally also showed her mom the thousand-word paper she'd written between shows backstage and told her that she always left right after the show with a nice but very tired boy who, of course, she'd never invited in. Her mom was not impressed. Mom had come home early with a headache. And the headache had become a migraine when she discovered Sally's bed had not been slept in. The White Horse Tavern is no place for a young girl to do her homework, Mrs. Steen told the nightclub manager the next evening. Sally is too young to work in a nightclub, and it's against the law. The manager was distressed to learn that he'd endangered his license by unwittingly hiring a minor. He fired Sally at once, but he said he was sorry to see her go. You'll be proud someday, he told Mrs. Steen. I'm proud now, she responded firmly. Sally's a good bright girl, but she's going to finish high school and maybe go to college. The manager walked out to the car with them. I'll tell you something else, he said. I wouldn't worry too much about college. Let her get started. She's star material. And she was. So she began thinking of ways to dance again, and soon she had an idea. A young Married woman with talent can find plenty of jobs dancing, and being married means family can't interfere. Sally married that tired young mu musician immediately after graduation. They went on a three-day honeymoon to an amusement park. Does that tell you how young these two were? A three-day honeymoon to an amusement park, and then came home and began looking for work. They were clearly both too young to understand what the commitment of marriage entailed, and there were bitter spats. But they always made up and both kept working. Sally's dancing was joyous and free. There was a glow about her, and she had no trouble finding jobs, and her name was finally in lights, Sally Steen. During a performance at the Lincoln Theater on Central Avenue in Los Angeles, an overhead cable snapped. The first ominous cracking in the loft was followed by an echoing explosion. The heavy curtain drop tumbled down amid writhing lines and a billowing of velvet. A weight thudded heavily, and in the confusion, 
it was discovered that Sally Steen lay unconscious on the stage. She regained consciousness in the hospital. There was a seemingly unending stream of nurses and doctors, and then she discovered she couldn't move the fingers of her left hand or her left arm or her left leg. It took hours to get the idea through her head. The curtain drop had fallen on her, and she was paralyzed on the left side. Eleven months and 23 days later, the doctors finally told her she would never walk again. Uncle Arthur, her mother, members of her family, they brought textbooks and metaphysical pamphlets, but she wasn't interested. Her young husband came to see her and apologized for their last spat and said he would stay married to her forever and carry her up and down stairs and push her in the wheelchair, and she wanted none of that. It wasn't fair to him, and she couldn't abide pity. Mom knew a lawyer, and the marriage was annulled. What good is a prayer of affirmation when you can't even move the little finger of your left hand, she asked as she described her thoughts back then to the authors of this book. What was the use of reading anything when the best doctors have told you you'll never walk again? The nurses tried to take me to the physical therapy room, but I was too miserable to leave my bed for weeks I didn't want to live. And then one day, Sally found a slim book that a member of um, Uncle Arthur's church had sent her. It had been written for people who had a long road ahead of them, and it summed things up like this. Two men in Washington were paralyzed from the waist down. One was selling pencils on the street corner. The other was in the White House as President of the United States. Who was that? Roosevelt. That hit her hard. She remembered one Sunday in church as a child when she really got the big idea that they'd been trying to impart. The teacher had said, it isn't your mind, not my mind, but God's mind. And we can have as much of God consciousness as we are able to understand. It was an overwhelming idea. She'd walked home slowly that day, and on the way, she passed a vacant lot with a few neglected orange trees in bloom. Y'all know that this area here used to be orchards. Tons and tons of oranges. That was our thing. Oranges were everywhere. So a vacant lot with orange trees wasn't a shock. Those trees were in bloom. So Sally thought she would take a branch home and put it in water. But she didn't because a remarkable thing happened. A honeybee settled on one of the blossoms. And for a long time, she watched the bee and the flower. Was God's mind in the bee too? And the flower? 
They seemed to be aware of each other and were important to each other, and she understood in a flash that she and the bee and the flower were all very much related, all members of one life, all part of the mind of God. Understanding overwhelmed her for a moment, but then it faded. And some of it was gone by the time she went home. But she had forever after a sense of the oneness of all life. And she kept the basic idea somewhere in her mind up until that morning when she woke up in the hospital and didn't care about anything because she couldn't move her leg. But now that story of the man selling pencils and the other man in the White House brought back the awareness of the wonder of life. And she understood again, you can let your troubles blind you. Cry, why did this have to happen to me? And then you'd never see the miracle. Or you could turn your mind to the solution and begin to see it and let it be revealed. Dr. Holmes had spoken to the Sunday school class one Sunday, and he said not to be discouraged if problems were sometimes difficult to solve. We didn't understand the principle well enough as yet to accomplish the kind of wonders Jesus achieved, but we were learning. We had at least part of the principle, and we'd work and study and practice until we had it all, he said. There were sometimes problems which called for patience, he'd explained. As an illustration, he talked about a hen sitting on her eggs, and I loved this. This made sense. It took exactly 21 days to hatch little chicks. That was the law. If the hen obeyed the law and kept the fertile eggs warm the proper length of time, the chickens would hatch. You could see the law at work under a hen's feathers anytime you so minded. He said, so remember, when you have a good idea, stay with it until it hatches. And so Sally began searching for the good idea she could stay with and hatch. She rang for the nurse, please take me to the therapy room. Her mother had brought her multicolored ribbons for her hair, but she'd scorned to wear them until that very day. She selected the brightest of them, and the nurse tied them in her hair, and she quickly became the star of the therapy room. She would work tirelessly and quietly and when there were triumphs, she would celebrate joyously not only her own many, many, once seemingly impossible triumphs, but those of others in the room. And word of her miraculous transformations traveled. The therapist at Birmingham General sent an ambulance to take her there. It was a veteran's hospital, and they asked her to demonstrate what could be done with just one hand. Soon she found herself making similar trips to Rancho Los Amigos or UCLA Medical Center. She was starting each day with the Science of Mind textbook again. She would reject negatives and select affirmations all day long. Many views are possible, but in a very real way, bright views can be just as true 
as grim ones in a world where nobody yet sees everything as it really is. I love that line. A world where nobody yet sees everything as it really is. Let that sink in there. Be with it, because it'll give you a lot to think about if you stay with it for a while. Sally said, anybody who thinks that consistently using the power of the mind is easy hasn't tried it. Because you don't want to kid yourself. An idea has to be true or it won't work. You have to keep sorting things out to find your real truth. Then you select the idea you want to demonstrate and stay with it. She began to improve in every way because she was affirmative and busy. Before long, she could hop around unafraid without a crutch. And once when she was getting ready to leave for Birmingham Hospital, she felt a tingling in her left leg, beginning at the toes. Could it be true? She stood still, eyes closed, and saw herself dancing, life and free, in an already believing moment that she couldn't have known at the time, would have her walking freely again. She feared the sensation might go away if she mentioned it to anyone, so she simply said thank you to the power within and rode to Birmingham the whole way, beaming with hope and joy. What are you so happy about? asked the glum driver. Well, for one thing, it's a lovely day, Sally pointed out, and it was too. Soon more changes began to occur. The tingling was in her ankle now. She continued picturing herself walking and dancing. And one day a nurse said, Sally, did you just move your leg? I guess maybe I did, she said, then deliberately moved it. And it obeyed. The nurse ran for the doctors. They were astonished. Before long, she was attending the rehabilitation school on 3rd and Broadway. Her knee soon began to respond, and she could get up and down stairs one step at a time. She took an aptitude test around this time, hoping it would reveal a talent for set design. Alas, it showed she was in every way fitted to become a bookkeeper, so determined, she signed up for the course. Soon she had a daytime job, worked eight hours, and studied bookkeeping for five hours in the evening. She insisted on wearing pumps with heels because they forced her to pick up her left foot and not drag it, which was easier. After she graduated class, her job stepped up and up. And she was living at home again, but making frequent trips to the hospital to show off her walking and dexterity with her right hand. That last bit was extremely significant. Some of you may remember a time in the not-too-distant past, within the last 10 years, um, when long hospital stays were the norm after any surgical procedure. They didn't used to want you to go home until at least a week or two had passed. We'll extend that practice decades further into the past, and you'll find that patients with severe physical or medical conditions back then 
often remained in the hospital indefinitely. So the fact that Sally was working independently and living at home are huge points. Those facts alone were almost as miraculous in that time as her physical recovery. I went into the wards wearing my sling pumps and bright colors, feeling light inside as if I were dancing. When the patients cheered up at the sight of me, it was applause. It was love. I gave it and they returned it and it helped. She was confident in the world and the world responded. She met and married a wonderful man named John Kinsey. Life was back and she was vibrantly living it. Then she got a little bit of a fright. The doctor told her she was pregnant. She knew she could do wonders with one hand, but what about lifting a baby and putting it down and changing diapers? She said, I had to have some help on that one, and a metaphysical practitioner straightened me right out. She said, metaphysicians had a lot going for them because they could talk to their children from day one. Now listen to this, no matter how young, she said, babies would understand if you gave them half a chance. Somewhere along the way, people had begun to believe that little babies didn't have intelligent response until they were three or four. Well, was I going to accept that when I knew children were a part of the same consciousness as the rest of us? I knew then that if I affirmed it, my baby would be quiet for me whenever necessary. I would only have to make it clear that she ought to cooperate and that I needed her help and she'd respond. The practitioner convinced me. So she spent the next many months practicing all the things young mothers do. Tiny babies can be amazingly cooperative and intelligent, she said. I proved it three times. If you want proof of what happened, there are neighbors still living around here who used to come and watch. My little girl Janine seemed to understand, and later, so did the others, Alan and Desiree Ann. If it had happened with only one, you could say it was coincidence. The truth is, I expected them to meet the situation, and so they did. Even after she'd become a young mother, the doctors and therapists still called on her. Those with unhappy or discouraged patients sent cars to pick her up. And off she'd go to make an entrance in some dreary ward, a bright testimonial to what could be accomplished, even after honest medical opinion said it couldn't. The doctors agreed with Dr. Holmes when he told the young graduate physicians, you deal with an inner healing power. So do I. One day, she left the hospital a few steps behind an elderly woman who'd just been discharged. As she waited with Sally for the light to change, she blurted out her situation. She had nowhere to go and no money either. Well, that solution's easy, Sally said. Come home with me. Now, here, she said, was where we'd come to know her husband, 
that John Kinsey. He was a printer and lithographer and was studying at UCLA on a scholarship. When she brought that elderly woman, Mrs. Cooper, home with her that day, he'd accepted the idea of welcoming a stranger as if the whole thing had been planned in advance, and that was only the beginning. On her trips to the hospital, she kept meeting people who needed shelter for a few more days or weeks or months. Sometimes they could pay their way, sometimes they couldn't. When you need help, you need help right now, Sally said. And John continued to accept each one. The house could be added onto. They had a big lot, so that's what happened. They kept building on extra bedrooms in their spare time. And in the course of this, they'd learned to do everything except plumbing and electrical wiring. And I'm sure you can guess by now what Sally did about that. <laughs> she studied, and she took the license exam, and she passed. One day I'd been talking to my husband about Dr. Holmes. John said that Dr. Holmes' philosophy gave me the bright view that healed me. And that ought to be the name of our house, Sally said about their now sprawling facility. Here I am, a person living actual miracles, and here we are with a place built from miracles, carrying on an idea I first began to understand when I was a little girl in Dr. Holmes's care. Many years have passed since then. Almost a century has gone by. Sally's place is still around. Although, like all matter does, its purpose has changed. It's now called Brightview Behavioral Health. With a new focus on helping people diagnosed with autism spectrum and other related disorders. Its reach in helping others is vast. And it's still local right here in Pasadena. Now, I didn't tell you this story to inspire your faith in miracles. The Hallmark Channel and all kinds of other media takes care of that, right? I told you this story to remind you that miracles, that magic, that possibilities beyond logic as we know it are real for everyone, and listen to this, all it takes is your willingness to affirm it into being, and it will be. Remember what that Sunday school teacher said to Sally. She said, it isn't your mind, not my mind, but God's mind, and we can have as much of God consciousness as we are able to understand. So how much are we able to understand? I'm not asking how much you understand in this present moment. I'm asking you to examine closely the boundaries you've placed on your belief. Where does possible stop and impossible begin? Are you only looking for that lucky horseshoe you can hang over the door? Or are you willing to take the whole horse? How much are you willing to buy? The entire stable? 
the entire meadow, the entire infinity. We are the literal stuff of stars. We are individualized expressions of God. Everything that is, is an individualized expression of God. The limits are yours to decide. In the words of Ernest Holmes, we are all children of one living God, one life that permeates all without exception, one intelligence that governs all, and most important, every man and woman who abides in the universe is a significant identity in the one universal consciousness. Whoever you are, be proud. You are a divine idea in the mind of God. Live without limits, and extraordinary miracles will become ordinary. They're yours, not for the taking, but for the knowing. Make them happen. Thank you.